Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole, and I'm from Calgary, Alberta. Before I get into the episode, I have a couple housekeeping items. Based on some listener feedback, I want to make a couple slight changes to the show. Don't worry, I'm not changing any of the content. But I know that you're busy, I'm busy, everyone's busy. Obviously, I would love for you to listen to the entire show, but in case you can't and you just want to get to the good stuff, I've added timestamps in the show notes. I'm also making an effort to be less scripted. I'm hoping to continue to grow as a podcaster. So the first few episodes, I used the same intro, and then I started telling stories about myself and how I connected to the failures in some way. And I think that being a little less scripted is the next step in my podcasting journey. I want to continue to grow and improve each week. I don't know if I told you this before, but we had a set of world book encyclopedias when I was a kid. A hard copy. Boy, I haven't seen one of those in a while. Anytime I was curious about something or bored, I would read about it in the world book. They were sorted alphabetically, so sometimes I would just take the M book, for example, and see what I found. I also used to write little reports on what I learned. I grew up on a farm and needed things to keep my busy, busy mind occupied. But I was thinking not long ago that it's like I've been training for this podcast my whole life. Engineering failures are my own little nerdy version of true crime. It's not that I like when things fail, it's just that I'm such a curious camper that I want to know what happened, why, and how. I need to know. Take this week's failure, for example. It's the first engineering failure I've covered from Asia. I'm slowly making my way around the globe. It's the Sampung department store collapse in Seoul, South Korea. I hadn't heard about it until a few weeks ago when I saw it on the subreddit, Catastrophic Failure. I immediately went to the Wikipedia page, my research medium of choice, and read the entire article. This is a fascinating story of greed, ignorance, and tragedy, and like all the failures I've covered on this podcast, completely preventable. Sometimes researching these episodes makes me so frustrated because of how many signs there are of the failure. But I can't go back in time, and the show must go on. So I hope you learn the valuable lessons here, and don't let history repeat itself. Buckle up, folks. This one's a doozy. But first, the news. This week's engineering news is a feel-good story about a robot that hugs users on request. I'm not crying, you're crying. Inspired by researchers with family members who lived far away, the robot is called HuggyBot 2.0. They had six design goals when they made it. To be soft, warm, human-sized, visually perceive its user, adjust the hug to the user's size and position, and release when the user wanted to end the hug. The HuggyBot 2.0 is made from two commercially available robotic arms, an inflatable soft torso that has sensors in it to detect user contact. It's covered in heating pads, wearing a purple robe, gray sweatshirt, and padded mittens, and it has a 3D printed head, which has a computer, a depth sensing camera, a speaker, a microcontroller, and a screen to serve as a face, which shows different animated facial expressions. It might be kind of freaky at first, but I think you'd warm up to the idea of a talking robot face that hugs. The robot's meant to be natural and intuitive. The camera senses the user and lifts its arms, asking, Can I have a hug, please? It also has torque sensors in the arms to detect when the user wants to end the hug, and sensors in the inflatable torso to detect when the user removes their hands from the robot's back. 
in Canada, within a few weeks, it'll be a year that we've been living in coronavirus isolation. There are some people who've been living alone this entire time and who haven't had a hug in almost a year. Fortunately, I live with my wonderful boyfriend and silly puppy that I can smother with affection against their will, but not everyone's been so lucky. I'm not even a really touchy-feely person, but I think a year without a hug would be really, really hard. If you want to read more about the HuggyBot 2.0, check out failureology.ca. Now on to this week's engineering failure. After standing for six years, the Sampung department store in Seoul, South Korea collapsed on June 29, 1995. It was the largest peacetime disaster in Southern Korean history, the deadliest modern building collapse until the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center in New York City, and the deadliest non-deliberate building collapse until the 2013 Sava building collapsed near Dhaka, Bangladesh. There was a large boom in Seoul leading up to the 1988 Summer Olympics. There were bans against international construction and contractors signing contracts for projects in Seoul, Korea. They wanted to keep it local. This meant that almost all buildings were erected by South Korean companies. They were built quickly due to the number of projects assigned to each contractor. Sampoon Group, the developer, began construction of the department store in 1987. It was constructed on four acres of land that used to be a landfill, but was now an affluent area. The original plans for the building were for a four-story residential complex to be built by Wusung Construction. Lee Jun, the future chairman of Sampoon Group's construction division, changed it to a department store during construction. In doing so, he cut away a number of support columns to install escalators, and he added a fifth floor. Wusung Construction refused to make those changes. Lee ignored their warnings and fired them, using his own company, the Sampoon Group, to complete construction. The building was completed in late 1989 and opened to the public on July 7, 1990. At its peak, the store had about 1,000 employees and about 40,000 people per day visited the stores. The department store had four basement levels and five stories above ground. At the time of the building construction, there were rigorous inspections for public buildings. And Sampung passed these inspections, which questions the integrity of these inspections based on the other information I'm about to tell you. In the months before the collapse, there were two gas explosions and a bridge collapse, which resulted in about 150 deaths. This shed some light on poor building practices at the time. One of the gas explosions was at an underground construction site for a metro line. They didn't call the gas company before digging, and over 100 people died. People. Always, always. Call before you dig. Alberta One Call. It's even free. As a result of the Songsu Bridge collapse, which was caused by cutting corners and metal rusting, over 30 people died. The bridge actually collapsed while people were driving over it, which is terrifying. In April 1995, cracks started appearing in the ceiling of the south wing of the Sampung department store's fifth floor. Lee, now the chairman of the Sampung group, moved merchandise and stores from the top floor to the basement. Civil engineering experts inspected the structure, and a cursory check found it was at risk of collapse, but nothing was done. They could have put columns in or reshore to reinforce the slab. They probably could have even made them hidden, got creative. In all reality, though, they probably should have closed the store for repair. But they didn't. In the days leading up to the collapse, disturbing sounds and loud bangs were heard from the fifth floor. 
vibrations were even felt on basement level one. Due to unusually high numbers of customers in the building, the management failed to shut down and evacuate the store. They didn't want to lose revenue, but the executives themselves left as a precaution. How kind of them. The collapse was inevitable. An emergency board meeting was held. Directors suggested evacuation. Lee refused for fear of revenue losses, even though he himself also left before the collapse. He didn't even inform his own daughter-in-law, who was an employee at one of the stores. She ended up getting trapped in the rubble and rescued days later. By 10 a.m. on the day of the collapse, a large crack was noticed around column 5E, and the floor looked buckled at the base. They closed restaurants on the top floor, but told the workers not to say anything. At 12.30, the facility manager, thinking that the air conditioners were causing the vibration, turned them off. By this point, the crack was already 10 centimeters wide. At 4 p.m., the facility manager briefed store owners about cracks. By 5 p.m., the fifth floor ceiling is beginning to sink. Customer access to the fifth floor was closed. They still haven't closed the store. At 5.40, a loud bang is heard on the top floor and the slab shifts. 5.45, packed with shoppers, the AC unit's still off and it's reached about 32 degrees Celsius in the store. At 5.47, a loud bang is heard again from the top floor. At 5.52, a shockwave rocks the building, alarms go off, staff try to exit the upper floors, but the building starts to collapse. In 20 seconds, the entire store has collapsed. The AC units crash through the already overloaded fifth floor. The main columns weakened from escalators, collapsed, and the south wing pancaked into the basement. It took about 20 seconds for all of this to happen. It caused 270 billion won worth of damage. About 1,500 people were trapped inside, and the rescuers were on site within minutes. There were about 1,000 rescue workers and volunteers, 30 cranes and excavators, and they worked through the night to remove huge slabs of concrete. By morning, 200 people had been rescued, 44 were dead, and many, many more were still missing. The north face of the building, which was still standing, had started to tilt and was at risk of collapse. By the end of the second day, they had to abandon the search. If you go to failureology.ca, you can see a picture of the building after collapse. You'll see the north face that's left standing is a tall, skinny structure that, without the building, isn't really supported. After the search was abandoned, about 500 protesters took to the streets, pushing for them to keep up the rescue operation. On the morning of the third day after the collapse, the north wing was stabilized by guy cables, and the rescue continued. By day four, the death toll was 107. A week after the collapse, authorities decided there was little hope. Between the summer heat and the lack of water, they didn't think there were any more survivors inside. So the rescue turns into a recovery. Five more days go by. 21,000 tons of debris are removed. And just after 3.30pm, 12 days after the collapse, survivors are found alive after 285 hours trapped. They'd been drinking rainwater to survive. And 16 days after the collapse, the last person is rescued after 377 hours trapped. Park Sun Hung was trapped in a space little more than the size of her body. Within an hour of the collapse, a full-scale inquiry had been ordered, and Professor Lan Chung of Civil Engineering at Dankook University's Engineering School was charged to lead the investigation. At first, they wondered if the building collapse was due to a gas explosion, similar to the two gas explosions that happened elsewhere earlier that year. 
But the fires in the rubble were believed to be from burning automotive gasoline from crushed cars in the underground garage, and they expected that a gas explosion would have been a much, much larger fire. Next, they looked into a terrorist event. North and South Korea have been in conflict for years, and it did bear some resemblance to the April 19, 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, which was just a couple months before. That said, in Oklahoma, you can see debris blown out sideways from the explosion, forming a pattern. But in Sampung, the debris went inwards, collapsing straight down, so a bomb also was ruled out. They finally landed on a structural failure. As I mentioned before, the original design of the building had four floors above ground. Halfway through the build, they added a floor. The construction company refused and was fired, and they decided to complete the job in-house. The investigators looked at the drawings, and the basic concept seemed okay. An engineer calculates column sizes and enters them back into the building. Somewhat like the Quebec Bridge, assumptions are made at first, and then recalculated later once the design information is known. Once they started digging into the structural drawings, they found some serious problems. Firstly, the column diameter is reduced in the drawings from the calculations. The calculations showed an 80 centimeter diameter column, and the drawings showed 60. Installation of fire shields around the escalators, a safety feature to prevent fire spread, also cut support columns, reducing the diameter further. On top of the reduced column diameter, they were also spaced 11 meters apart to maximize retail space. That meant more load was placed on each column than if they had been closer together, like originally planned. The original design was meant to be two and a half times stronger than needed, so the columns being reduced by half was still okay, but that wasn't the only problem. There was a poorly laid foundation on unstable ground. Substandard mix of cement and seawater and poorly reinforced concrete was used for the ceiling and walls. The building was a flat slab structure without cross beams for steel skeleton, so there was no way to transfer load across the floors. The floor slab is supported directly on columns. The area of the floor around the columns should be reinforced to carry the load, and if the columns are too narrow, they can punch through the slab. The number of rebar embedded into the concrete was 8, but it should have been 16, so it was half as strong as it needed to be. And the rebar was in the wrong place. It should have been 5 centimeters from the top of the slab, but it was 10 centimeters. I know this sounds like a minor item, but it was actually quite critical. Lowering the rebar within the slab weakens it by 20% where the slab connects to the columns. The added fifth floor was supposed to be a roller skating rink. Zoning regulations prevented the entire building from being used as a department store. But they changed it to eight restaurants instead, which each had heavy equipment. The construction company advised the structure would not support the extra floor, but again, they were fired. On top of that, typically in South Korean restaurants, diners sit on the floor. In-floor heating was added to the fifth floor slab. This caused the slab to be thickened and even more stress on the column connections. Any of these things on their own may not have resulted in the failure, but combined, they're not good. When they got down to it, the cause of the collapse was related to three 15-ton air conditioning units that were installed on the roof, adding 45 tons of load to the roof structure, four times the design limit. In 1993, two years before the collapse, the three large AC units were moved because neighbors complained about the noise. But rather than being relocated by crane, they were put on rollers and dragged across the roof. 
One of them was moved over column 5E, which was the column that had visible cracks seen before the collapse. Every time the AC units were turned on, they sent vibration across the roof down through the fifth floor, radiating, and the cracks got wider around 5E until it broke, let go, and the floors pancake on top of each other till the whole building has collapsed. The facility manager turned off the AC on the morning of the collapse, but it was too late. By then, the crack was already 10 centimeters wide. When I was reading about this, I had a question. I didn't see any mention of this, but I don't see how they wouldn't have had roof leaks where the cracks were located. The prosecutor's office had the ability to arrest the owner, chief architect, CEO, and facilities executive under suspicion of professional negligence. Lee Jun, the chairman of Sampoon Group, complained during interrogation with Professor Chung, the lead investigator, that his main concern was that the collapse inflicted great financial damage to his company. He didn't really seem to care about any of the victims. On December 27th, he was found guilty with criminal negligence and sentenced to 10 and a half years. The prosecutors had asked for 20. However, the sentence was reduced to seven and a half years on appeal. He died October 4th, 2003, months after release from prison, after complications from diabetes, high blood pressure, and kidney disease. His son, the store's CEO, received seven years for accidental homicide and corruption and he was released from prison in 2002 and worked as an evangelist in Mongolia. Lee Chung-woo, a city official and the chief administrator of the area, was sentenced to three years in jail for bribery. Huang Chol-min, former chief for the area, was found guilty of accepting a 12 million won bribe and sentenced to 10 years in prison. 12 million won is equivalent to about 13,000 Canadian dollars. Can you imagine 10 years in prison for 13k? The former chief administrator of the Siocho district was also jailed, and a number of store executives and companies responsible for completing the building were also sentenced. Families of the victims asked for $361,000 each. The city of Seoul, representing the store's owners, offered to pay $220,000 for each victim. Two months after the collapse, Lee Jun and his son liquidated the Sampoon Group and offered their entire wealth to compensate the families. The settlement of 3,293 cases resulted in payouts of 375.8 billion won, which was completed in 2003. The collapse of the store and the investigation that followed shed light on some other corruption within Seoul, South Korea. There were 21 others, including 13 city officials, that were found guilty of widespread corruption. Also, a lot of the newly constructed buildings were inspected. Only 1 in 50 were deemed to be safe. So there you have it, the Sampung department store collapse. They demolished what was left shortly after the collapse and recovery. The site remained vacant until the year 2000. The families of the victims requested a memorial, but they were opposed by the district government. The Seoul Metropolitan Government had to step in and mediate the dispute, and they ended up building a memorial elsewhere. The land was sold to a private developer, and a luxury apartment complex was built. It was completed in 2004. Would you live there? I think the site may have some bad juju. Check out failureology.ca for photos and sources from this week's episode. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failureology so more people can find it. And if you want to chat with me, my Twitter handle is at Failureology, or you can email me at thefailureologypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks everyone for listening, and tune in next week for the Q&A episode, where I answer all of your questions about the podcast. It's kind of like a behind-the-scenes look at failureology. But more on that next week.
Bye, everyone. Talk soon. Thank you.